Welcome to TTB Community. I am Bob Demena, and here with me, as always, is the very resilient Elliot Chibley. Thank you, Bob. You're welcome. So our guest today is Larry Burns, and I'm very excited to have had this conversation with Larry. Um, he served as General Motors Corporate Vice President for Research and Development and Planning and currently advises several organizations on the future of mobility, logistics, manufacturing, energy, and innovation. But the topic we focused on today is, without a doubt, a topic I have been extremely excited about for many years. And Bob, you know all about this. Mm -hmm. And it is autonomous vehicles. And there is a lot of discussion on autonomous vehicles and where we stand with them, if they're going to be good for us or if they're going to be bad for us. And today we discuss Larry's book, Autonomy, The Quest to Build the Driverless Car and How It Will Reshape Our World. And we apply some of the knowledge in the book to discuss how autonomous vehicles are going to impact travel, not just from cars, but to hotels, to RVs, to airplanes, and to trains. And it was an awesome conversation, and I hope you really enjoy it as much as I did. Yeah, it was a great spin on, on travel. So that was a great conversation. So, But before we get into that discussion, I'm going to just run you through what we have going on. Now, we are no longer just a podcast. We are a travel consulting platform. And we have now explored multiple avenues for how we can help you plan your trips abroad. We have video tutorials that Elliot and I have worked on a lot. They are now available for pre-order and that pre-order information gives you a discount for those tutorials that you can only get by listening to this podcast. We are not um, we are not conducting any marketing anywhere else right now. So if you're listening to this, you are the only that is the only way for you to know about these video tutorials for the time being. Check those out and email us if you have questions on them. We're providing consulting services where we help you plan your trips. You could, that can be through a one-on-one -on -one video. Uh, conference where you and I will sit down and go over the details of your trip. You can do it for one course. You can do it for five. There's a lot of information there to, that we can help you with, or we can just write your entire itinerary. Uh, we also help with airline booking where we promise to save you at least 200 bucks on a flight and we're charging $65 for that service. So go to our website and actually click on our consulting services tab if you're interested in any help that we can give you with your trip planning. In addition to that, you can get a free travel cheat sheet by signing up for our newsletter where we get information on where you'll get information on what we have going on behind the scenes as it relates to new guests, past guests, and current video consulting, or I'm sorry, travel consulting services. And other than that, Travel Roundtable, check it out. A really fun podcast line that we have going on now. If you're listening to this and you are yourself a travel influencer, digital nomad, travel author, just involved in the travel world in any way, you can join us on a Travel Roundtable episode for a future discussion. Just go to the Travel Roundtable tab on our website, submit your information, give us a few ideas of what you're interested in talking about, and we will set you up on a future podcast episode. That's it for today. Without further introduction, please give it up for our next guest, Larry Burns. Welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Start designing your next adventure. Larry, welcome to the Traveler's Blueprint. Uh, thank you very much, Elliot. Bob and I are very, very excited to talk to you today, and the topic is a, it is something that I have been very passionate about for several years now, and I have just finished reading your book, Autonomy and the Quest to Build the Driverless Car and How It Will Reshape Our World, and it got me, I, it's, it's tough to say how much it got me excited for the future, and I don't know if I could actually put it into words, but I attempted to read your book before falling asleep and I found myself just thinking and thinking for several, I don't know, like 30 to 45 minutes every night about the contents of the book. And before we get into your book, I want to talk a little bit about your travel background because you've quite traveled quite extensively in your lifetime and then get into a little bit of your background in the automobile industry. That sounds perfect, thank you. 
Mm -hmm. So how did you start traveling and when did you start? Oh, that's a a great question. Um, My dad owned a diner on Pontiac, Michigan, so he couldn't get away from it. It was a 24-7 kind of business. We took just two trips while I was growing up to, to one to Tennessee and one to Florida, but I fell in love with travel then. He was also the local baseball coach, and we played tournaments around the Michigan area and Ohio area. So I like getting away from home, but my real break was when I decided to go to graduate school at University of California, Berkeley. Being from Michigan, I'd never been west of the Mississippi, so I bought a Chevy van, a 1975 Chevy van, and customized it and fell in love with travel. I would travel out to Berkeley three years and back, and I would go by way of Alaska. I would go by way of the southern route through the Grand Canyon. And I had a chance to visit nearly every national park in that time frame. While I was a student at Berkeley, I would go camping out of my van maybe 90 nights a year, and I just loved it. So then when I finished, um, I picked up backpacking. I had some really close friends in college, and we made a commitment that once a year we would meet somewhere in North America on a Friday night or Saturday morning and take our packs into the mountains for eight, nine days. And we did that in Alaska. We did that all throughout the Pacific Northwest, did the Grand Canyon. So I backpacked all over North America. Then I met my wife, and we decided we wanted to travel. And we were married seven years before we had kids. So we took some pretty nice trips then because we were making some money. That's when I discovered Europe, for example. And then um, we had kids, and we wanted to install the passion of travel in our children. So we started taking family trips. Once they became a little more mature, they became more elaborate. So the one that really stood out was going to Africa. Our younger daughter had to be more than 10 years old before the travel company would let her go. We went to Namibia and Botswana, um, uh, Zimbabwe, and it was a wonderful trip. And then we discovered Backroads Travel, uh, which was uh, just really a wonderful company to deal with. And so we've been for many, many years now taking at least one back roads trip as a family somewhere. And then finally, one last point of this, my, my job at GM yeah. took, took me to 20 to 25 countries a year for over a decade. So I got to see. The wow. And I'm, I'm not completely familiar with back roads travel. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, how did I get from, uh, introduced to it? Was that yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. How did you get introduced to it and what exactly is it? Well, um, we were looking for a way to uh, hike and um, enjoy the mountains and enjoy being outside on our, our travel, but we were getting a little tired of carrying the backpacks and, and, and camping. And it turns out back roads allows you to hike every day. Beautiful scenery. They pick out the routes. That's why it's called back roads. I get you off the the main trail back into more interesting places. And then you stay at very premium hotels at night and you have great dinners. And then the next day they take you in a van to your trailhead or wherever you're going to hike. You spend the day together. Sometimes you'll hike up a mountain and you get up to the top and they have a beautiful lunch spread out for you to eat. Wow. Then you come back down. They're based in Berkeley, California. Okay. And, um, it's like yeah, really, luxury yeah, travel like, meets backpacking. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I, yeah, I've never, never heard of it. Haven't been well, yeah, familiar with it. Yeah. There's other companies that do that as well, but we've, we've really fallen in love with them. They do uh, biking trips. Uh, we tend to do the hiking ones. Uh, we just, our last one was to Iceland. Uh, we went there last summer. Okay. It was, uh, well, actually I, I should qualify that. Our second to last one was Iceland. Our last one was Vietnam and Cambodia. We went to Vietnam on February 19th just as the pandemic was starting to set in. And then we yeah. we had about, a, I think it was about a 12-day tour, which ended in Cambodia, and we got back um, before we were really restricted on our travel. But that was a wonderful trip to see Vietnam. And, but mostly you're walking all during the day. And yeah. uh, very, very nice. Can I ask when you were in Iceland? We were in Iceland last summer uh, in July. And oh. again, okay. it was a back roads trip. We got to Reykjavik and then... We flew on a small plane um, to the southern part of the island, I'd say the southeast part of the island, and worked our way back. And we would travel between our hiking locations in a couple of vans, and then we did one day where we did it it on bikes. It was just spectacular. That's awesome. I was was originally going to be traveling to Iceland uh, last, I think the first week of August last summer. 
but I ended up having a pneumothorax, a collapsed lung, and was not able to travel. It happened two weeks before we were supposed to fly out, and I had a 30-day no-flying uh, restriction. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Very but unfortunate. I highly recommend that opportunity. Um, you know, the experience on the glaciers, the ex experience um, with the food and the culture. It's such an interesting culture and, and the history there. And then um, just uh, really an exciting trip. And my daughters, they're 32 and 29, and they okay. they look forward to taking a trip with us. Neither are married, but they look forward to taking a trip with, with us every year. So we're kind of blessed that we have adult kids who still like to hang out with mom and dad. I guess <laughs> yeah. we're, we're paying for it. Maybe that's why <laughs> we're willing to go. <laughs> Can I ask what the first trip you did with your kids was? Where to? I'm sorry, Bob, you're not, not quite as loud as Elliot. I'm sorry, could you speak up, please? Can I ask what the first trip you did with your kids was? What country you went to? Oh, we would have, it probably would have been um, St. Lucia when they were very young and we were looking for a place uh, to just get away. So we've been to the Caribbean islands quite a bit. Um, uh, we then did, later on, we did a trip to New Zealand. My wife's cousin lives in um, Australia, so we met up with him and his family in New Zealand. I'm guessing my kids were probably... 10 and 7 then. So that was okay. a pretty long trip for them to fly that much. Yeah. But it's in their blood too. My younger daughter now is a chef. She um, studied communications at DePaul and then went on to culinary school. And um, I, I think this future that we're going to talk about, the future of travel, is very exciting. I, I read somewhere that four out of five restaurants could fail because of the pandemic. But people mm. still love food. Oh, they yeah. love wine. They still love travel experiences, and you begin to think about this integration of, of, of what we're doing, communicating like this, and where is this going to take us with virtual reality, augmented reality, all of that stuff, and how do you combine a totally different food and um, experience with the virtual travel experience? So I think the, the sky's the limit here. We're going to have to be very imaginative, and autonomous cars will fit into that future for sure, but it's a pretty exciting future, I think. I completely agree. And yeah, let's let's get into a little bit about the history of your background in the automobile world and how you came to be a major part of the autonomous revolution and be bringing it to the public. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Michigan, Southeast Michigan. So anyone who lived in Michigan had the car industry in their blood. Yep. And um, when I finished high school, I had a brother in college and a sister in college, and my dad's diner couldn't pay tuition for a third kid. So I went to a school called General Motors Institute up in Flint, Michigan. And it was a co-op engineering school where you would study for six weeks and then work at GM for six weeks. And I made it through that program in good shape. Went on and studied public policy at University of Michigan, but I was always fascinated with transportation. You know, why was the automobile such a dominant way for people to get around and the role that transportation played in economies? So I went out to University of California, Berkeley to get my doctorate degree in transportation engineering. And it was a fascinating time. I was there from 1975 to 1978. That's when I had my, my van. And um, I returned to General Motors, sort of thought I'd work about three years there and then become a college professor. And I stayed there until we went bankrupt in um, 2009. So I had a long career at General Motors. Initially, I was focusing on um, freight transportation and production systems, and that led me to be going out of research into the operating side of the business. And by the middle of the 1990s, a guy named Rick Wagner had been named president of GM North America, and he asked me to head up planning for GM North America. This was our product planning, our business planning strategy, manufacturing. And then in 1998, he asked me if I would head up the research and development laboratories for GM and take on the planning role worldwide. And so Rick continued to advance, and he became our CEO and chairman of General Motors, and my career advanced along with Rick's. And, and right around 2000, when we were going to be celebrating you know, the 100-year anniversary of the industry and the company, Rick asked me a really profound question. He said, if you're going to invent the car today rather than 100 years ago, based on the issues that we face in the world, you know, climate change and safety issues in cars and the technology that exists today, what would you do different? That was an extremely liberating question. He said, I need to be thinking about that. 
what grew out of that was a concept car called autonomy, mm-hmm. which we showed in 2002. And lo and behold, it was like a skateboard with wheel motors, electric wheel motors. And that has sort of become the, uh, the platform or chassis of, of the electric car industry now. It's really taken off. And that's the car, that's the picture of you skating yeah. on it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a pretty, pretty fun moment. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then it turned out with, with the Iraq war in particular and our soldiers getting uh, maimed by these explosive devices, the Department of Defense wanted a way to let soldiers take missions without being at risk. So an autonomous military vehicle that could go with nobody in it and have no remote control was something that the Department of Defense aspired for. So GM decided to compete in the race, which was called the DARPA Urban Challenge, which was a 2007 race between with Carnegie Mellon University. And since it was a development project, that was really my area of responsibility at GM to lead that on GM's behalf. And we won that race in 2007. It's a $2 million prize. I joke we needed the money because we were going bankrupt, but <laughs> it, was, it was thrilling. But... The auto companies didn't step up. They, they saw it as kids playing in the sandbox, but Google did. Larry yeah. and Sergey Brin finally decided they were going to go for it. They were at the race, by the way, for the whole weekend. It was mm-hmm. for California. And by that time, um, GM had gone bankrupt, and I had left GM and had gone out on my own as a consultant and a college professor. And Google asked me if I'd come in and advise their self-driving car team. And I did, and I'm still doing that. I'm on my 11th year as a consultant to what's called Waymo, mm-hmm. and Waymo was the company that spun out of Google self-driving cars. So I've had my fingerprints on this. Now, I'm not the guy that's working on the sensors, the lasers, and the cameras and stuff, or writing the software. I'm kind of the guy that thinks about, if you can have a car drive autonomously, what's it going to mean to the future of how people move around and interact? and how goods move around and what's going to, how's it going to change our life? That's really where I focus my attention. And that's exactly the reason why we wanted to talk to you and not one of the tech people, because I think it's going to, I think that cars are right. They're the most dominant form of transportation in the world at this point in time. And if cars go autonomous, what does that mean for the travel industry? Not just in a in the COVID nineteen era, but post COVID nineteen and years to come, this it, it stands to be the most revolutionary change to cars since the car was first introduced. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it can have a profound impact. And let me just give you one quick exam, example to get our discussion of this going. Um, last uh, a year ago, last April. I was invited to speak at Ideas Week in Elkhart, Indiana. And you might say, Elkhart, Indiana, what's going on there? Turns out that's the recreation vehicle capital of the nation. Oh, is that, is that where Winnebago Man came from? Yeah, it's in the same area as South Bend, which where Notre Dame is. And Notre mm. Dame was having a big push on innovation. So they asked me to come in and talk about what could the impact of autonomous vehicles be on recreation vehicles. So think yeah. of homes here. Now imagine if you had a motorhome that on the interstate, you didn't have to be in the driver's seat. But just on the interstate, let's say when you're off the interstate, you had to drive it. There's 47,000 miles of interstate. But think how that might change how you enjoy your recreation vehicle. Now, let's take that a step forward. Let's say that that wasn't just a recreation vehicle. Let's say it was a mobile hotel room. And so you could arrive at a three-way entrance and gain access to an automated mobile hotel room that takes you to wherever you want to go on that 47,000-mile interstate system. You'd have your bathroom facilities. You'd have bed. You could cook. You could sleep. And think what that means to air travel. Think yeah. about the hassles you, we were going through before the pandemic to take, a, let's say, a three-hour flight. You'd have to get to the airport an hour early. You'd have to go through security. The plane might get delayed, all that stuff. And now you could have this opportunity to now move around and not have to spend your time driving. The reason I use that example is the 47,000 miles of the interstate, it's not all the same. Some of the stretches of the interstate are pretty risky. Curvy, mountainous, bad weather, heavy traffic. Other stretches are I-80 across Nebraska. Straight, Mm -hmm. flat, nice weather, modest traffic. And this technology is going to start to play out 
in over-the-road trucking using the interstate system because we know what the cost of a truck driver is, but more importantly, there's a shortage of truck drivers. And that's going to move right into the rec recreation vehicle opportunity. So think what that means to how you go different places and, and the burden of traveling in a vehicle suddenly gets reduced dramatically. And then when you get to your destination, maybe you don't stay at a hotel. Maybe you just stay right in that vehicle like your hotel room. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what I was thinking. Business travel as well as leisure travel. Yeah. That, well, that's exactly what I was thinking. That, that's I mean, just one example that comes to mind, which would be profoundly different way of, of, of moving around for leisure and business travel. Yeah, I mean, it would it would kill the hotel industry, <laughs> but but right. I mean, it, it might, but um, I don't think it would completely. But to the idea of being able to go to New York City and have your mobile home and say, you know what, tomorrow let's go to Philadelphia. And you can sleep on the ride. You wake up and you're in Philadelphia. And you could do that across the country. That sounds um, like a traveler's paradise to be able to finish your day and get in your own hotel on wheels and wake up at a new destination. You know, you 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 hit the, the GPS and you let it go and you wake up and you're in a brand new state, a brand new national park, and you're not paying for airfare. You're not dealing with overcrowded airports and TSA and all the things that we all hate about travel are gone. Yeah. yeah. Glad you, I'm glad you brought that. The last thing you just said about what, what do we hate about travel? When you're in the innovation business, like I've been in, you get fascinated by the thought processes for innovation. And there's, there's a really important thought process that says, if your customer is having a negative experience or even a neutral experience, that's where you need to innovate because your brand really gets hit hard with negative experiences. So you think about all of the steps in an air trip, travel by air, where things can go wrong and you can have a negative experience. And this is where this innovation gets so powerful. Think about buying and owning a car. How many people like to go shop for a car? Not many. How many people like to shop for financing and insurance? We don't. How many people like to look for parking or stop to buy gas? Now, some people <laughs> to drive, but not in traffic. So the auto industry for a century has existed on the assumption that people would put up with all these negatives and pay $35,000 and then leave their car parked 90% of the time. Yeah, It's ludicrous, and that's why the business will be disrupted. So travel, take the travel things. The, the point you just made, where are the negatives in travel? That's why we use back roads. They are exceptional at taking most of those negatives out of the experience. I don't have to yeah. worry about packing my bags from the hotel. I don't have to worry about which restaurant to pick. I don't have to worry about my local transportation. And they have these masterful guides that take us out and they give us all this cultural training. So this is where your business travel is going to get so fascinating. How do we recreate the travel experience and get rid of these negatives? And autonomous cars will play in that. Yeah. So the change of using these mobile hotels to travel from point A to point B it's definitely going to be slower, but if people are willing to spend that time and not have to worry about getting on an airplane to get to their destination faster, then that's that's their choice. But mm -hmm. if they want to, if they don't care about time and they want to enjoy their day or two on the road traveling from New York to L.A., or I guess it's a little bit longer than that, but since there's not a driver, that doesn't ever have to stop. Doesn't have to stop. Well, you have to get some energy along the yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can say, well, the battery has to recharge. Yeah, but there's some exciting stuff going on with hydrogen fuel cells where you can recharge faster. And battery re battery technology is coming. But what's neat about that? So let's take that example of New York to LA. What would you do along the way? And this is where the virtual experiences could get very interesting. So yeah. If they are in route and you're going to go past the the St. Louis Arch or something like that. And suddenly you get all kinds of ways to experience that. Now, maybe you do want to stop there and see it in person, but you get the history behind it. Then you get the history of the exploration of the United States, west of the Mississippi. All of this stuff can be brought in and that, that experience. And, you know, what's going on with virtual reality, this mobile hotel room could be a mobile VR platform as well. And right. You're experiencing... Yeah could be phenomenal. You could work, work out in it and everything. So, yeah. Larry, have you, Larry, have you been to the top of uh, One World Trade Center? Um, I, the new one, no. In, the old no. one. 
Okay. No, no. They have an incredible virtual presentation. Elliot, I don't know if you remember it. We met up there years ago. I've been up there. That's actually how Bob and I met. Yeah, I was part of the first trip. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've been up there tons of times, but you get into the elevator, and as you go up, and I don't want to spoil it too much, but the entire elevator is one giant screen. It's a 360-degree screen, and it starts, and all you see is Swampland, and that's New York City. And as you go up the building, the years start to tick, and you watch New York City get developed all around you. And it's so awesome. That experience. And then and then you get to the top and you now have the highest view of New York City to ever exist. It's the tallest building in the country, correct? I believe it is. Yep. Um, so and that 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 virtual tour, the anticipation it builds to to get to that destination is incredible. It added so much to the experience. So to be able to do that autonomously oh, in yeah. your own hotel with your family and friends and to just enjoy that experience, show up, get out of the vehicle and be there is, it just sounds like a, an incredible travel experience, not only for the, the time you're there, but for the actual act of travel, which right now as it exists, most people do not enjoy. Yeah. yeah. No. And you, your example of the elevator, think of the interstate as a horizontal elevator. Yeah. So, so all of that carries right over. And, and so, so that's certainly one area that's exciting. So now let's say you arrive at the city that you're traveling to and, and you say, how am I going to get around now? And this is going to get a lot of fun. We, we, today, a bus, a transit bus in the city doesn't necessarily give you a great experience. You know, the bus has to stop to pick up people. So you wait every time the bus stops, you're wedged in. I think the new form of public transportation is not mass transportation, but it's personalized public transportation. Where, um, and I talk about this in my book, we did, created a concept at GM called ENV, Electrically Networked Vehicles, or pronounced ENV. It was the star of the Shanghai World Expo in 2002, in the mobil- 2010, in the Mobility Pavilion. And the idea was, you, you know, like these little micro-mobility shared bikes and scooters and stuff in towns. Now think about a little pod that you can sit down in. It's air-conditioned. You're not going to get rained on. You're not driving it. It's autonomous. But it, 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 um, when it drops you off, it goes and picks somebody else up. And when you model those cities, and I led a research program at Columbia University after I left GM where we did just that. We modeled Manhattan. We modeled. Uh, Columbus, Ohio, Ann Arbor, Austin, mm-hmm. all those places. And lo and behold, if you have a shared fleet of those pods that equal about 15% of the cars in the city, you can serve everybody phenomenally at much lower cost per mile. Yeah. When that... you arrive at the cities, the city is going to give you very personalized ways of getting around without you having to own a car or park a car, pick you up at your origin, drop you off at your destination. No anxiety about how do I get to that little restaurant that I heard about back in that back corner. All of that hassle is going to be taken out of your life. You're not going to have to have currency to pay for it or credit cards. It's all going to be built built to your account. So I think you've got this chance to move between cities in a very different, innovative way. And then once you're in the city, some very new ways of moving people around as well. Yeah. I, I envision the future of New York City without the yellow cabs without having to look six times before you cross the street, get honked out and say, oh. hey, I'm walking here. And, <laughs> and, and the, yeah, the vulnerable road user in Manhattan, that's the person who wants to walk. Yeah. Columbia, I would st- stay um, at 77th and Broadway, and I would oftentimes walk up to the university. And so I'd be crossing a lot of streets and stuff. And, and, and it doesn't feel safe at times. These cars are going faster, and they're certainly much bigger than me, so I'm vulnerable. And I, I just begin to think people in cities are going to say, why should I be exposed to the risk of somebody being able to drive in my city? Now, if you get the size of this machine down dramatically, like the one I'm talking about, it might only weigh 1,000 pounds, not 4,000 pounds, and you manage the speeds properly, it's going to be much safer for everybody. Not yeah. the person riding in the vehicle, but the person walking or biking 
or whatever else we're doing. I and just that, I, yeah. I, I envision the domino effect that will occur too. I mean, just thinking about taking these cars off of the road, not to mention the the real estate that opens up if you don't need all these parking lots, which you could potentially turn into like green spaces or or, or whatever you want. The decrease in in fossil fuels, so therefore a decrease in respiratory illness, and and that's just off the top of my head, and it, it just seems like there are so many benefits, side effects to this that it's just it sounds like yeah. a utopia. I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's the intent. <laughs> right, We're right. living through a, a terrible pandemic right now, but we've been living through a, a, an epidemic of roadway fatalities worldwide for some time. There's 1.2 million people a year dying on the world's roadways. Uh, it's so the, high. The people in the cars, it's the pedestrians and bicyclists as well. So I, I, I figure that if we can realize the full potential, safety potential of autonomous cars, these would be cars that don't crash. If we could get there one day earlier, we'll save 3,000 lives. And you say, how can that be? Well, the traffic safety experts believe we're going to reduce crashes by 90 to 95%. So you multiply that times the 1.2 million people and divide by 365 days in a year, you got your 3,000. <laughs> so the real risk here, in my judgment, is not realizing these safety benefits as soon as you can. So the friendliness of a city, you're not going to feel near the risk you feel before just in walking around and riding around in vehicles, you're going to get a lot of anxiety out. You're going to reduce air pollution, better health benefits. I think the chance of the experience is improving are significant. So yeah, 2000... Think... Go ahead, Bob. No, well, I was just going to say, I think the, the benefits seriously outweigh any sort of con that someone might present. and it. I, but I imagine there will be pushback do you know oh, yeah, what pushback, pushback yeah. you know, and, and just thinking off the top of my head, like the pushback from people who just like to drive or um, maybe uh, the oil industry pushing back. Well, they already are for electric vehicles. Yeah. I mean, Elliot, auto yeah. Elliot started out by saying that my book kept him up, which is always nice to know. But what keeps me up on this subject is, is really two things. One is there's a huge vested interest in this century old, form of roadway transportation. It's the oil industry, it's the traditional car makers, it's the people who build the roads, it's the um, unions who represent the drivers. All of those are going to realize a major disruption has come along and the nature of their profitability and the nature of their jobs is gonna be impacted dramatically. The world has lived through those kinds of transitions in the past, when we went from an agrarian society to manufacturing world a lot of people left the farm but found jobs in cities and it worked itself up but that transition can be painful for a lot of people so like doing it right now with retail uh, brick and mortar oh, retail yeah. to online restaurants shopping. You're, yeah yeah you're seeing it restaurants right in covid yeah, yeah right, right so i i worry about pushback from those vested interests because they're very adept at lobbying they're very adept at controlling the policy agenda but I also worry about the people whose jobs are going to be displaced because that's their livelihood. And growing up in, um, in Michigan and being neighbors of a lot of people who work in auto plants, you can really feel for their families if their job suddenly is impacted. And I wish I could sit here and say I've got this beautiful vision of all these new jobs that are going to come in and they're going to be good middle class or better than middle class jobs. Don't quite have that sorted out. So it's, it's a real concern. But we We've got to get in front of this because this is the benefits are so big of autonomous driving, the consumer benefits of the experience, the societal benefits on safety and air pollution and land use. We, we have to get to this future, but we have to get in front of it and training people and educating people. So that's why I really wrote the book was to try to get a narrative out there to help a much broader audience of people that aren't part of the technology see mm -hmm. what's going to get prepared for it. A few years ago, maybe last year or two years ago, NPR did a segment and they were they were comparing the autonomous revolution to the trolley car situation uh, where you have the choice to the trolley is on a track that splits and on one track there is one person and on the other track or on one track there's five people on the other track there's one person every mile but it doesn't stop. Now, if you don't switch the tracks, 
you are going to kill the five people. If you do switch the tracks, you're going to kill all of those people infinitely. What do you do? And they were comparing that to autonomous cars. Who's making those decisions behind the wheel and behind the engineering and the software to say, hey, if we're going to get into an accident, is the priority to save me as the person in the car or save the pedestrians out of the car? And I don't think that question is necessarily, I think it, for NPR, I think it was short-sighted. I think the bigger question is, is it better to have autonomous vehicles instead of manually driven cars, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm glad to frame, frame it the way you did, Elliot, because first of all, the autonomous vehicle won't um, be on the road if it's not proven to be noticeably, radically safer than a human-driven vehicle. When you study traffic fatalities and serious injuries, there's experts who study this all the time. There's 40,000 Americans who die here on the road and every one of those fatal accidents has an investigation. That fatal accident reporting system is a database that you can access. And when you study what's the root causes of these highway fatalities, it's us, it's mm -hmm. people. Humans drink and drive, humans get distracted, humans drive faster than they should, they drive in weather conditions that they shouldn't be driving in. And lo and behold, the traffic safety experts believe autonomous cars will eliminate 90 to 95% of those fatalities. So let's take the remaining five to 10%. Some of those are gonna be different than what they would have been because we're in this autonomous world. Yeah. And that's the ones that people are gonna fixate on. So would you rather, save 90% of the lives and have 10% still occur, but they would be different people than they might have been or, or not save the 90% of the lives. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of like a vaccine. A vaccine, mm -hmm. I take the vaccine because hopefully I won't get the, the flu, but I also won't give you the flu if yeah. I have the vaccine. But vaccines can cause allergic reactions and so should we not get vaccinated and save 95% of the people out of the risk that some people would have an allergic reaction? Well, the federal government did something about that when the flu vaccines first came out. It's a National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. And when you look at your sheet that you sign at CVS, when you get your flu shot on the back of that, they say they give like a, a dollar of every flu shot goes to this compensation fund to try to deal with this. We're going to work through this issue. It's, it's funny to me that this subject of autonomous cars popped up, and within a year, the lawyers were having conferences on the ethics of driverless cars. Why? Well, if we don't yeah. have car crashes, a lot of lawyers are going to lose a lot of business. Yeah. Well, that's, I think that was one of the most interesting, interesting aspects of your book, is in the beginning, you list out how much money autonomous cars would save the United States each year. And it ended up being somewhere close to $2 trillion a year yeah. in savings. And that doesn't include the accident insurance payouts right. and the, right. the cost to the lawyers and the cost for all of this other stuff. And the only the medical expenses people incur. Right. Yeah. This, the, the number you're citing, Elliot, was really the depreciation on the car it was the fuel, it was the maintenance of the car, and the parking cost of the car, and um, it was those kinds of components. There was an insurance com component yes. on a cents per mile basis, but it's a huge opportunity. We, the chapter in the book is called the $4 trillion disruption. Today, Americans drive about 3 trillion miles a year, and the cost of out-of-pocket Cash cost plus your time cost of doing that is about a buck fifty a mile. So that's where the the four trillion comes from, yeah, roughly. And 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 we think we can, we, we think we can get that down from a buck fifty to below twenty cents a mile. So that's that kind of brings me to a question and maybe a segue into a, another branch of this conversation. <clears throat> the how it's going to relieve the financial burden that a lot of people feel with cars it's still in this country i don't i don't know the percentage of people who don't own a car but i do know a lot of people struggle with owning a car especially in urban areas and this is going to eliminate that need completely a lot of our listeners are in urban areas and are in the younger you know demographic i i'd like to get into the discussion on how this technology will be used you know i i understand that 
-hmm. It could be an app that you essentially summon a car similar to how you do Uber. I want to get into maybe how it's going to decrease the financial burden of younger people Mm -hmm. or just people in general. And then how maybe it's actually going to be used among them. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, I want to add to that question because not, not just daily life, but uh, when we travel. What was the last part of it? When we travel? Yeah. Yeah. And you're talking travel in our daily life or travel for enjoyment? Travel for enjoyment. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, let me really start way up here at 100,000 feet. Um, a, a colleague of mine, a good friend, a person I worked with when I was at Columbia University is a guy named Jeff Sachs. He's a very well-known economist. He wrote a book called The End of Poverty. He ran the Earth Institute mm-hmm. at Columbia. And we had a conversation just a week ago. And this isn't just an autonomous vehicle statement. It's this whole digital economy. When all of this stuff starts to converge and we realize that um, uh, we don't need to spend as much labor to produce the things that people consume because the digital economy has made everybody more productive. Jeff's hypothesis is we will have more leisure time. And that means more time to enjoy travel and more time to have these experiences. Now you need disposable income to travel, but if we can make travel even more productive and the experiences um, delivered in, in more innovative ways, I think that's gonna help. Now, Bob, back, back, back to your question. Um, I, I, when you look at the numbers, um, buying, transportation is the second biggest budget item in a household's family budget. Their home is their first and transportation is the second. It's about 19% of family spending 20%. Owning and operating a typical car for a typical year is about $10,000 a year. That's a lot of money for a lot of folks. And uh, the reason this is going to go down in cost is that car has way more parts in it than it needs because it's been mechanically driven with a human controlling it. Electric drive is dramatically simpler than mechanical drive. You don't have nearly as many parts in electric motors as combustion engines. You don't have transmissions, for example. You don't have exhaust systems. So eventually the car is going to be much easier to build at lower cost. So that depreciation cost per mile goes down. This car wants to be an electric vehicle, not just because of regulatory concerns, but just the experience you can deliver in the car with electric. And electric saves you a lot on fuel costs versus the cost of gasoline. If the car doesn't crash, the insurance cost goes down. So suddenly this thing that's costing $10,000 a year might be only costing a couple thousand a year. People are gonna want it and move around, but. I think the biggest time savings that will come from autonomous vehicles are the trips you don't have to take. So can Mm -hmm. I dispatch my autonomous car to go to the store to pick up something that I forgot for dinner? So let's say I'm having guests over and I forgot to get wine, so I send my autonomous car to the store to get the wine and come back. I didn't spend any of my time on that trip. I think think the answer to your question is going to be, the market's going to sort that out. There's going to be this new way of moving around for people and goods, new way of consuming, and people are going to do what they want to do with this, and it's going to create a new kind of equilibrium in where we live and how we live. I want to emphasize, this is not just an urban story. 26% of Americans, when you ask them where do they live, they say, I live in a city. 53% say they live in suburbs. This is a suburban story as well. So the work from home phenomenon is going to change maybe the desire and the, the reasoning to live right downtown so I don't have to commute very far to, hey, if I can work from home four days a week, I can live anywhere. I, I worry about that. <laughs> I'm, on the, I'm on the board of a, of a company called Kitson and Partners. We're developing an all-new town in Florida, uh, north of Fort Myers, called Babcock Ranch. So you just sort of Google that and and look at Babcock Ranch. This is a 50,000 person town that we're building. Now we've got about 750 people there now. We have a ways to go. But we can imagine it's totally solar. It's a solar based home. And in this world right now where people can work from home, we're beginning to get a lot of customers inquiring about Babcock Ranch because it's such a beautiful environmental setting with trails and waterways and stuff. They're going to say, hey, I'm going to go live in Babcock Ranch and work from home rather than living in downtown Naples or maybe living in Manhattan or San Francisco. 
So I think you're going to see, and, and that impacts travel. Yeah. So as Bob said, we met because we both worked at an engineering firm and my background is in landscape architecture. So I have a very, very strong interest in how cities are efficient, how people move in cities and how people move between cities. And one of the most exciting things to me about the autonomous revolution is what Bob already mentioned is about the space saving in cities, not having to have surface parking everywhere not having to have parking structures everywhere and the actual roads if we have 15 percent of the cars today traveling in those cities the roads can get significantly smaller and you could have more opportunity for pedestrians to walk for bicyclists and you have more opportunity in a covid era to have outdoor seating for restaurants and it's it is still just so I, if the future looks like that, I would be very, very happy. And I hope one day I can live to see it. Well, those opportunities are there, Elliot. Um, one of the things we've done at Babcock Ranch is, is we've taken and made sure all of the plants are natural plants to that region so that we don't have to water them and we don't have to mow them. We don't have to weed them. And it really starts to save a lot of money. And yeah. the land from Babcock Ranch was, um, had some mines, uh, limestone mines. And so we've rebuilt those lakes back with this natural um, uh, uh, plants. And, and it's really impressive. There's, by the way, there's three parking spots per car in the United States. So that's a lot of land. Think a about land. a cube that someone works out of in an office space. There's more land dedicated to people parking their cars than there is to, to work how people work when yeah. offices. So this, this, this gets exciting. So autonomous vehicles are about much more than just cars. It's going to impact retail. It's going to impact finance. It's going to impact the insurance industry. It's going to impact the trucking industry. And um, you start to pull that thread through. And I think it's going to be a major part of how the economy is going to reorganize itself over the next 10 to 20 years. We went through a period like that in the late 1800s and early 1900s. I'm, I'm much older than the two of you, but many of the things that shaped how I lived growing up, television, air travel, cars, um, radio, all of that stuff had its roots in innovation in the early 1900s. And then those things got embraced and adopted on a large scale, and it shaped how people lived for a century. And I think we're in, we've entered into that same kind of transformational period and travel is going to change along with all those opportunities. My hope really is that everybody gets to experience what I've had the privilege of experiencing as a traveler, to go to all these places and to learn about all these different cultures and to appreciate the food from these different places. You may not have to physically go there to have these experiences Yeah. Um, in, in the same way. My daughter being the chef, we've talked a lot about how can she – marry up a meal with the wine, have the the person who owned the vineyard in Italy, uh, Zoom with the people having the meal and her taking her her clients through the meal experience and part of that could be virtual. She could work out of her home kitchen and she could have her supplies delivered autonomously at the start of the day and her finished meals delivered autonomously at the end of the day. Totally change the nature of a restaurant and restaurant experience and by the way, you have an augmented virtual, virtual reality as if you're sitting in Venice eating while this is going on. Now, it may not be quite as good as traveling to Venice and being there for sure, but it'll be a heck of a lot better than, than reading about it in a magazine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it's just about improving the experience, right? I mean, right now we can watch a movie about Venice or a documentary about Venice, and it's not definitely not as good as going, but it's pretty enjoyable for people interested in going to Venice. And so it would just be some sort of middle ground between the two. To go back to what you just said, my wife actually, her her and her sisters and her mother all had uh, cheese curds delivered to each individual house. They log on to Zoom and they actually have a, they follow along with a class and they make mozzarella cheese together. And so incorporate that action or, you know, the, the entire process into an augmented reality where they're in Italy and there's a guy, you know, playing the violin 
and you have, you, you know, you feel like you're surrounded and you have Trevi Fountain right there, whatever it may be. And that would enhance it dramatically. I, I still it wouldn't change travel. People would still want to go. Yeah. But oh, yeah. it would, it would be a huge industry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, so can I ask you to jump to the point in time where you think this may all be a reality? Well, um, <laughs> what, I, what I think about is what I call a tipping point rather than everybody has it at scale because uh, it's a lot easier to ask the question, what must be true for real value creation to result from autonomous vehicles? What do you have to prove? And I think we're in a three to five year window where we're at a tipping point. By the way, on electric vehicles, the world's reached that tipping point. You can see that in terms of Tesla's valuation and other electric vehicle company startup valuations, the investors now are putting their money in this new form of, of propulsion called electric vehicles rather than investing in companies who do combustion engines. So that we've hit that tipping point for electric vehicles. For autonomous vehicles, we're in a three to five year window where we're going to see local goods delivery and over the road trucking proven out autonomously. What's going to be driving that? E-commerce. And the pandemic has put e-commerce on steroids. Mm -hmm. and Amazon and Walmart and UPS and FedEx, they're, they're trying to satisfy this demand for increase in goods movement. There are labor shortages. Amazon's a $1.5 trillion company. They've got deep enough pockets to really drive this thing home. Um, Alphabet, the parent of Waymo, has pretty deep pockets. So I think we're in a three- to five-year window on the goods movement. The people movement is going to be a step-by-step. -step. It's going to start in places that are a little simpler and then expand out from there. But it's going to be clear that's where the world's headed, I think, in a, in a, in a five-year window. When will everybody be able to experience it? We have to realize in the United States, there's 250 million cars. So you're going to have to work through that whole fleet of cars. So it's, there's a lot of inertia in this. It's going to take a while for it to turn over. But for most people, they're going to say this future is inevitable, and that's going to be crystal clear to most everyone in a three to five year time frame. That inevitability. I I had read previously that Sweden actually already has a full fleet of autonomous trucks distributing goods across the entire country. I don't know. I read that. Um, that's about the extent of the information I have on it. But yeah, yeah, I would have to dig dig into that a little bit more when you say a full fleet. You know, that could be in, in the hundreds, and that might be very possible. Um, in terms okay, yeah. of all, all, but I don't think all of our goods movement would be done autonomously at this point in time. But we're right in that, that very exciting period where the proof of concept, I think we're past proof of concept. I think oh, now yeah. it's a matter of really perfecting that last 1% of things that humans can do that the autonomous systems can't. I don't think there's any scientific showstoppers here. Engineers make what's possible real. So you guys are engineers, I guess, and that's what we trained ourselves to be, to make what's possible real. Mm -hmm. This is possible. What we're talking about is possible. There's going to be huge market demand for it. There's going to be societal desires for it. And the engineers will team with the marketers, and we're going to make what's possible real. There's no question in my mind about that. Yeah. And Bob, to talk about your question about the adoption rate, there's a really interesting chart that shows uh, various adoption rates of technology since the 1900s. And it goes from like the telephone to the tablet, telephone being one of the first things invented uh, that was adopted in the US. And a lot of these have a, a lot of the early ones that Larry was talking about, the TV, radio, cars, those had like a 40 year adoption from the creation of it to 100, 90 to 100% adoption. But if you look more recently in the last 20 to 25 years with the internet, with cell phones, with tablets, there is almost a 10 to 15 year curve that goes to 50 to 75% adoption rate. And we're at that <laughs> convergence of technology where we have accurate GPS, we have cell phones that can summon a car to you. We have really powerful internet almost globally at this point. And those three items really make autonomous vehicles possible for everybody. That's great. I think that's a really great observation. If you had to pull this off and the internet didn't exist and people didn't have wireless connectivity, no way. 
the enabling ecosystem really is really ready for this. Yeah. And uh, now it's just a matter of letting the technologists continue to do the learning. That's how engineers make what's possible. We do it through learning cycles. And uh, those learning cycles are are playing out really fast right now with some really extraordinarily capable people. By the way, this is not just a U.S. thing. You mentioned Sweden before, but China and their capabilities in this space are pretty formidable as well. um, Israel, it's, it's pretty pretty impressive what's going on. The, the transition seems inevitable. And I think people with the technology that they have today, the iPhone, how many things has it made seamless? It's, it's extinguished the friction among doing so many daily tasks and eliminated so many other items that people had to buy, like, a, you know, a camera, I could go on, I could, I could list them. Um, and I, I just the the transition to me is inevitable. One hundred percent, this is going to happen. People will fall in line because people enjoy living seamless, frictionless existences. Yeah. I'm, glad so- brought, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because when I mentioned my Africa trip with my kids, when my younger daughter finally became ten, we went out and bought a digital camera, but was a with a huge lens and it didn't store very many pictures and stuff. So that leopard picture that I sent for your website was taken on that trip. But the one I actually sent you was taken of the photo on my wall with, at home with my iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> time to go back and get the original digital file for that leopard. And I think about what I can do with an iPhone today that 20, 30 years ago were all separate devices, the, the watch, the calculator, the camera, the navigation systems and everything. So this is, this is I think it's inevitable. I, I believe the right thing to do is get in front of it. So I'm glad you're having this podcast and I hope this has planted some ideas with a lot of your listeners and audience on how they might innovate off of this. And I think people in the travel industry really need to begin contemplating how to, how, what new opportunities are going to exist and which ones might go away and how do I get in front of that? And I think this convergence of food and wine and travel and experience and how we can bring this to people. I'm not saying eliminate the travel part of it, but bring it in a much a more friendly, better experience way is, is a great place to focus on in, for innovation. I do want to ask what obstacles you do you see not in stopping it because it doesn't seem like it can be stopped, but in slowing down the adoption. I think it's this pushback from the players with vested interests that they're going to find reasons to try to convince consumers that maybe this isn't safe, maybe it's not ready. You think about the oil industry right now mm-hmm. and the, the time frame when GM went bankrupt. This was in the 2009 time frame. Exxon Mobil in one quarter of that financial year made $29 billion. And right now, Exxon Mobil was just removed from the um, Dow Jones Industrial Average is, is one of the, the companies. So there's a big push, pushback from players who've made fortunes over the last century because they were part of the automobile industry as it's always existed in roadway transportation. So that's that we're, we're going to have to deal with that resistance. But that's, that's just the nature of economies and how the world mm-hmm. changes. And uh, that's why we wrote, we wrote the book. Chris Shogun, my, my collaborator, and I wrote the book to get this story out there to help people get on board. One of the one of the things at the end of your book that gave me a lot of hope and that it was sooner rather than later was the ability of the automobile giants, the people that have been manufacturing automobiles like GM and Ford for over 100 years, and Google and Uber have started to work together. They've actually both, or I should say the technology and the mechanical has come together to actually support the autonomous movement. And there's a lot of support going to Washington. I think legislation is often one thing that holds back the yeah. speed. And I th- I don't see that necessarily being an yeah. issue anymore. Great observation, Elliot. It, it hasn't yet. And I really compliment the Department of Transportation at the federal and state levels in particular, because a lot of people could have said, hold on here, we're not going to let you develop this technology on public roads. That's crazy. It's not safe. 
But in fact, they've allowed this to continue to happen. And that's the only way the engineers will make what's possible real here is to learn on real roads and real traffic conditions. And so I think the regulators have been, a, they've got a huge responsibility to manage safety. I mean, that's their job. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's job is to, to make sure people are safe on the roadway. Yeah. So they take it seriously, but they realize the prize at the end of this could be the elimination of 90 to 95% of the crashes. And if the pathway to realizing that prize is to learn on public roads, they're letting us continue to do that. And, and that's, that's been pretty visionary on their part. I I completely agree. Yeah. So something that I want to bring up, I I don't I we're not a political show at all. But one of the the main sources of me getting this information, one of the first ways this was brought to me was through Andrew Yang. He ran he ran for president this this year, and uh, how much of what he says are you involved with and agreeing I with? Think, because. Yeah. Yeah, I, <laughs> I really liked what he was doing during the, the primaries. I, I, I think um, I, I think his message needs to be understood by a lot more people, whether I would try to solve it the way he wanted to give everybody a check. There's a tsunami coming on the economy. He talks about it. The digital economy is a term I use. Other people put other terms on it. But when you really look at what uh, the digitization of everything is doing to really eliminate waste. I mentioned there's going to be half as many parts in an electric car versus a combustion car. We've eliminated a lot of waste. The waste of designing and engineering and tooling and manufacturing and using all those materials and the waste of labor and putting all that together. But that may be half as many jobs. And so how we're going to deal with that is important. So I appreciate the fact that he got out there and he was trying to help a lot more people understand that the real issues on jobs that the nation's going to be facing, your generation, your cohort groups, are going to be driven by this, this technological tsunami that's coming. They can argue outsourcing all they want. They can try to make the villain look like a company who decided to source a part from China rather than build it in the U.S. That's a second-order effect compared to the number of jobs that are going to be impacted just through the implementation of the digital economy. That's why the stock market has continued to do so well during the pandemic. What's driving the stock market are a handful of tech companies mm-hmm. that are becoming enormously more wealthy because the investors are realizing what a powerful impact this technology is going to have on them. Right. So yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it is the big issue. It is the thing that's going to keep us up at night. But people have got to get in front of that and find opportunities in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, I just, I mean, I hope we contribute to getting this message across because to me, it's clear as day when, when I would hear him speak and, you know, technology, this digital, this digital infrastructure is taking over jobs that, that were typically in person. It just seems so obvious. And you have people complaining about it all the time, whether it's the closure of malls or retail stores, uh, we're already dealing with it. And so to say, oh, you know what, but it's not going to happen to truck drivers. It's not going to happen to bus drivers. Why not? Everything else indica- is indicating that that these technologies are taking over. Why? How can we define when it's going to stop? I, I so I, I just hope that his message and your message um, just get out there more. I really yeah. do. Thank you. Thank you. The the if I were to uh, use an analogy uh, in the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds when the car first became started to become popular, right? There were still horses on the streets of the United States and the and England and Europe. And right, we don't have horses on the roads anymore. You can take your horse to a designated horse trail and ride your horse, but they are not allowed on the roads because of safety issues. But the people that managed the stables, that cared for the horses, that did all of that work, those jobs basically vanished, right? So those people then moved and transitioned into the automobile industry for the most part. And they started working as mechanics, as car washers. And I think that's where we're going to see. We're always going to have improvements in technology. We're never going to stay stagnant. And And and, if it's directed, the technology improvements will make the world more sustainable. Yes. So future generations can benefit. But 
um, what comes with that sustainability in many cases is productivity because a lot of the lack of sustainability in the economy is lack of productivity that now can be tapped because of the digital technology. Yeah. This, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for reaching out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is what we do. We find this is what we do. Yeah. We find interesting people like yourself, and we say, you know what? We want to learn more. Yeah. Maybe we can <laughs> get back. Maybe we can get back together again in a year or two and do a status report. Oh, that would be wonderful. That that would be incredible. Yeah, for sure. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, Larry. Thank you. Thanks for reaching out. I appreciate it. Nice meeting you both. You Bye-bye. too. I will 100% be one of the first people to get an autonomous car, either in the form of a subscription or in the form of an actual vehicle I purchase. I will too. You know, something interesting that you told me was that you don't think you're going to even buy another car. Like, you think that you'll have an autonomous car by the time you're ready for your next vehicle? I, I sincerely hope so. I mean, my car is only five, I guess six years old at this point. And I only I have less than 100,000 miles on it. So I think in the next decade, I think there will be autonomous vehicle subscriptions. Interesting. I hope so. I'm on board as well. I think that would be great. Yeah. And I mean, I don't I don't personally like commuting. I don't know many people that enjoy the physical act of commuting. Driving is something else. I enjoy driving on like backcountry roads where I can actually enjoy the experience and I'm not just sitting in traffic. Right. But imagine being able to enjoy the experience on a backcountry road and actually being able to view the landscape through, you know, out the window without having to look at the road ahead of you and worry about all the stresses that come with being a driver. Yeah. And the fact that they are just so much safer. To me, it's like a personalized train car. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. That's sort of how I visualize it as well. Just this, you're able to get into this vessel. It takes you from point A to point B. And you could focus in, on other things. To me, as someone who man- prioritizes time management, I can't think of a better way to be able to, to transport myself, being able to get on, you know, break out the laptop, read a book, whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah exactly. Love it. love it. So, all right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you want to support this show, you can do one of two things. You can do two things. You can either go to Patreon and, and donate $1 per month to the podcast, which would we, we, we are beyond grateful if you consider that. The other one requires no financial contribution, just that you share the podcast, you leave us a review on iTunes if you haven't done so yet, and you engage and like and maybe comment on a post that we have on social media. So that's really it. Uh, other than that, we hope you enjoy the podcast and we will bring you a brand new episode next Monday. Thank you. <laughs>